Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle. I am joined today by Ian Smith, deputy companies editor. How are you doing, Ian? Fine, John. How are you doing? Not bad. Uh, Mark Robinson. Hello, John. How are you, Mark? Oh, very well, thank you. And Alex Newman. How are you, Alex? Good. Good afternoon, John. Excellent. So, yeah, we've got lots of the magazine this week. Um, it's the 20th anniversary of AIM, and Alex is going to be talking uh, about that very shortly. Um, Mark's going to uh, be discussing BP's statistical uh, yearbook for 2014, I think it is, um, and uh, the outlook for uh, world energy markets. Uh, but before we come on to that and uh, the cover feature, which is about uh, reassuringly expensive shares, we're going to uh, have a quick chat about the news this week. Ian, what have we got going on? Well... Where do we start? I think that probably the, the most important figure this week uh, was 2.7%, which was the increase in average weekly pay in the three months to April, which far outstripped economists' expectations and is further evidence of a strengthening economic recovery and crucially actually just trickling down finally to workers' pay packets. Simon mentions that it's the eighth uh, month in succession where we've seen wage rises radically outstripping inflation. Especially as cost of living was obviously a big part of the political debate prior to the election and just the idea that with the amount of money that was poured into the banking sector which then led to severe cuts on public services um, workers were just not feeling the benefits of the recovery in pay increases um, and if you, especially if you compare it to the uh, inflationary environment that we have that's a pretty uh, good rise. Okay good news for retailers then potentially but uh, we'll come on to that uh, in a minute. Um, I mean, there were some uh, inflation figures out as well. So I think a month ago we spoke about deflation, but that's gone. Now. Yeah, it was a brief dip, um, as many people predicted it would be. Um, and we're back into slight inflation, mm. 0.1%. Mm. But I guess the worry, worry or uh, possibility remains that, uh, you know, with wages rising quickly and uh, the oil price bouncing back, we could start to see some uh, much punchier inflation figures in the months ahead. Yes, but we're still quite a long way below the 2% target level Bank of England. But yeah, very much the prediction has been that the inflation uh, will rise back towards that uh, towards the end of this year and to the beginning of next year. But yeah, that's always going to be the... There's always a fear, isn't there, whichever way it's going. Okay, nothing to worry about yet, but uh, definitely something to keep an eye on, I suspect. Yeah, it's, it's, um, the major other news story this week, obviously, is still going on in Greece. Um, mm. Just kind of further bad news. Equity markets kind of stalked by the fear of uh, Grexit. And we talk about it each week, so we don't want to labour the point. Um, but the key figure there is this 1.5 billion euro payment uh, that is due to the IMF at the end of the month. So last ditch negotiations continue. There always seems to be a last ditch, and then beyond that, there's another ditch. Yeah, I'm sure there'll be a final ditch at some well, it, point. It does seem that we're getting to that final ditch now when it comes to Greece. Yeah, yeah, I think that, that that's the key um, date. I think it's June the 30th, and that this payment has to be made. I'm sure there is some political fudge that can yet be done. Mm. Well, we've been saying that for a while. I'm not so sure. I, I heard this morning on uh, on the radio that um, the Prime Minister, Alex Alexis Spiras' wife, had threatened to divorce him if he gave any concessions to the EU. So, <laughs> I mean, Tough times at home. And then the Finance Minister, did you know that his wife is believed to be um, the, the lady from Common People? She came from Greece. She had a thirst for knowledge. She I mean, scu- studied uh, sculpture at St. Martin's College. The Pope. And sorry. yeah, and apparently the only person that studied sculpture at St. Martin's College from Greece at that time is the, uh, the other half wow. of the finance minister. There what, you go. What, P- significance, what significance this series of parties has had on, uh, on our lives. Um, I mean, we, we talk about this jokingly, but, um, you know, 
Syriza was uh, Syriza, Syriza was it was elected on a mandate of um, basically going head to head with the EU. I mean, you know, this is almost an impossible it, mandate. Yeah, it's an impossible mandate. But you know, they can't, to my mind, really be compliant with with the demands of of the troika, as it were. I, I mean, it, it just seems a disaster waiting to happen, as we've said all along. Yeah, I mean, when I said I think there could be a political fudge, I'm, I'm more meant around the deadline rather than there'll be some fudge that will you know, patch it all back together. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I, I, like you, I agree that um, there's just such, so much of a gulf in between the very left-wing party um, that's promised not to enact any of the reforms or probably enact a very small amount. Um, and it's international creditors which want far-reaching economic reforms. Uh, and set against the uh, determination of European politicians to keep the Eurozone together. Yeah, exactly right. It's, it's hard to see exactly how it's going to all come to a speedy resolution. But yeah, we'll keep tabs on that. Okay. Okay, we've been keeping tabs on it for a while. But, uh, we don't talk about it much because, uh, but I, I, I think yeah, this is going to really affect the markets, uh, and it actually already has been affecting the markets quite seriously. I mean, you look at the FTSE over the last couple of weeks. I mean, it's it's, it's in a big downtrend. Yeah, big and downtrend. I, I think that's the reason to keep talking about it is because it is it does seem to be now really starting to affect the markets. Obviously, European equities have had a good run this year, um, but we're seeing some kind of tough, you know, red numbers, aren't we? Mm, indeed. Oh, do, you, do you think that uh, the FTSE's weak performance uh, is, is the result of Greece or do you think other factors are at play? Um, I think that's a lot of it, but I do think also the, the uncertainty in the bond markets, um, which is something else that we've written about this week, um, that kind of sell-off, I think that kind of um, sentiment might be feeding across as well. So this was your piece that you, you wrote, yeah. the lead piece in the news uh, section? Uh, yeah. Aberdeen readies for a fall? Yeah, so basically... Um, it, there's some figures uh, from Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, actually they're EPFR figures, uh, showing there was a $5.9 billion outflow from bonds in the week to the 10th of June, which is the largest weekly outflow in 18 months. So that just shows that you know investors getting out of bonds, um, and that is something that worries fixed income managers, obviously. Um, Aberdeen has taken out a $500 million or well, some credit lines, so it hasn't actually drawn the credit, but it's set up credit facilities in case there's mass redemptions from its bond funds. Um, and it's something that BlackRock, um, reportedly according to Bloomberg, has already kind of ramped up the amount that its mutual funds can collectively borrow in the case of redemptions. So obviously you have the major fund houses um, that are starting to get worried that this um, this kind of stuttering sell-off that we've seen in the bond market is going to really start to um, hit them because the big fear for fixed income investors is the liquidity or a lack of it um, in the bond market. And that's what people have been talking about for a while in the institutional investment world, especially um, it's been talked about for a while, but perhaps that might come to a head if we start to see a real big sell-off feeding through into big fund redemptions. Oh, you've, got to, you've got to wonder, so the money's, money's being taken out of, uh, of the bond markets. Um, it doesn't seem to be flowing into the equity markets. We know it's coming out of emerging markets too. I mean, where, where is the money going? Yeah, I mean, what we've seen obviously what's been popular over the past couple of years have been alternative assets, especially fixed income alternatives. I haven't got the fixed hand on, on, the, on the fund flows, but yeah, definitely alternatives has been something that's been quite popular. Also risk mitigation strategies with um, equity markets seen as a kind of uh, you know six, seven year highs. It, it might be il- il- illustrating as well if we um, in the coming weeks have a look at the cash positions of fund managers at the moment as well. That's always a very good pointer. I've, I covered this about eight months ago, um, but I, I, I should be doing it over the next week and I, I can make a, a pledge to our listeners that I'll come back with uh, something meaningful next week. I'd like to hear that because it wouldn't surprise me if we're seeing a lot more people moving into cash and sitting on it. Because, yeah. Uh, yeah, or, or, or as, as you say, in wealth preservation. Mm. Um, Have a look at gold. Yeah, well, gold, gold's uh, bounced a little bit. 
certainly holding steady. And um, I, yeah, I, mean, I saw a chart today that suggested it was hitting a, hitting a breakout level. Yeah, I mean, it, it's been bobbing around that uh, $1,200 mark for a long time now, which we which we've said in the past was the all-in sort of um, production cost there for gold. Uh, uh, there's a possibility, though, as you mentioned before, if inflation starts to creep back into the system, you know, that's obviously supportive for gold prices over the rest of the year. We, we're, broadly, we're broadly sort of positive on them. Mm, tricky times. Tricky times for investors to navigate. Indeed. But, um, you know, tricky times though they may be, uh, there's one market that has cause f- for celebration, and that's the A market. Alex, you've been looking at it this week, and I think you spoke to, uh, to, to the boss of that market. I did, yeah. Happy birthday, AIM. It's 20 this week, and for Secretary Feature this week, we um, interviewed uh, Marcus Stuttard, who's the chief of AIM. But he, uh, I guess, now wants it to be seen, or, or indeed says that investors see it on a par with the main market of course that's debatable yeah uh, i think that's not really true <laughs> I, I, th- I think there you know there's a lot going in in, in aims in aims favor and for many of our investors it, it is the most exciting part of the market i mean to my mind at least you will you won't get a uh, a company tripling in value in the FTSE 100 within the space of a couple of years but they occasionally crop up it on aim so there's a lot of excitement in the market but if you had put 100 pounds into into aim when it launched 20 years ago, on the 19th of June, 1995, I think you'd be looking at about £85 in your pocket now. So it's been not a great returning index uh, or market, but, you know, there are some fantastic stories there and, uh, you know, it, it's not going away anytime soon. Well, I guess the argument there is that you're not buy- this is not an index you would buy to track. It's an index. It's a stock pickers market. So, you know, you, it's a place where small companies with great potential come to raise some money. You know, a, a shrewd investor might be able to pick the best of them, and you know, by by concentrating their their investment, in a few companies could make a lot of money. Buying the index, not necessarily the way to play aim. Indeed, and and and, and Marcus Stuttard admitted as as much uh, to us when he said it is a stock pickers market. The worry for some investors is that the light touch regulation, uh, or the lighter touch com- compared to the main market, is a danger, and that sometimes there is not enough protection from the. I guess fly-by-night companies we we sometimes worry about where there is either a conflict of interest between the the nomad, which acts as both the broker to the shares and the advisor to the company, uh, and and small retail investors, um, and that there there also may not be as much protection for for retail shareholders from off-market capital raisings, which can dilute share prices quite heavily and is is more of a symptom of AIM than it is the main market. So... Well, AIM is an unusual regulatory arrangement. It's essentially self-regulated. So, so the regulator of AIM is the London Stock Exchange, which is, I guess, the ultimate financial beneficiary of companies coming to market on AIM. Yeah, and they're not they're not looking to uh, you know put the handbrake on 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 attracting new new companies to the market anytime soon. China has been one of the uh, more worrying jurisdictions for for companies uh, or company listings on AIM in the last few years. But uh, Mr. Stuttard was uh, was keen to still look at uh, businesses that might want to float on AIM uh, in China. Elsewhere, they're you know they're very focused on on North America and, and Europe as well. So that there is a lot more to come from uh, emerging markets mm. as well as the more uh, mature ones. I mean, playing devil's advocate, why on earth would a North American company want to list on AIM rather than? the markets of North America, where there is a much more active retail investor base, lots of money floating around. I spoke with one uh, one company, which uh, Adgorithms, which just floated on AIM, which is an Israeli ad tech business with a with an artificial intelligence proprietary software. It's quite in, uh, quite an interesting company. 
they said if they had floated on on Nasdaq, where a lot of ad tech startups uh, are, are found, they would have been swamped there, and they would have the, the expectations would have been too high. AIM allows them to grow at a steadier rate, perhaps with with slightly less expectation than uh, than the Nasdaq. Nasdaq, sorry, the you know the the, the liquidity uh, of the pink slips can can be a bit of an issue for some some companies which don't regard the investor base quite as as mature as uh, as AIM, but also not as um, combative as um, the full market for tech stocks in in the US Nasdaq. So. It's a it's a sweet spot, arguably, but it also is also cheaper to list on AIM. So we we should uh, bear that in mind. Mm. And cheaper because it doesn't have the the same regulatory burden that other markets have. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, my my view as I've written in the editorial this week is that you know I think we have to accept that a, a kind of lighter touch regulatory arrangement may sometimes cause problems. But but you know. AIM is a good thing, and it has been a good thing. There's some great companies that have come come through the AIM market. You list a few in the feature. I mean, you know, someone like ASOS had a few problems recently, but I mean, it's it's an undeniable success story. And you know, twenty twenty years on, uh, AIM's still here. The Neuermarkt, which was Germany's attempt at it, didn't survive. Uh, and actually, I think there's talk even of them, them uh, trying again. But uh, undeniable success story, um, but a lot of work to go potentially to overcome some of these regulatory concerns that people have about it. Well, the problem as well, if you look at the, the total return over the period as well, the, the, the market has been heavily weighted towards resource stocks as well and startup resource, resource mm. stocks. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, that was always a problem. And it was always said of uh, AIM that it was a, a very good primary market, but very poor secondary market. But when you look at it, since the changes to um, tax regulations, that secondary market has actually picked up now. There's there's quite a bit more liquidity in it. And given the attrition that we've had, particularly with resource stocks over the last couple of years, you could actually make the argument that it's um, a higher quality market now than it was uh, 18 months, two years ago. Well, I think that's an argument we've made several times. We, we often cover uh, yeah. the A market. We do our AIM 100 uh, roundup uh, over two weeks uh, every year. You know, yeah, you, you look at that, you look at the kind of companies on... On the, certainly among the top 100 largest companies on AIM. And, you know, you've got a very broad spread across sectors. You've got some very mature companies. Some companies that have been around for hundreds of years, even. Well, exactly. And the, and the point is, when you look at second boards right around the world, there is a history where they haven't actually outperformed the main benchmark. But they're not there to do that. They're there to provide a financing for smaller companies that can't, won't be able to raise it uh, through tertiary finance or uh, on, on the main market itself. Absolutely. But Alex, I mean, you spoke to a company called uh, Athenry Trust, and that was mm. one of the original 10 that, yeah. that uh, was uh, was there at the beginning, 1995. Yeah, so still listed. So so um, uh, Robin Boyle, who is the, the fund manager of Athenry Trust, uh, specifically invests in uh, in small caps and counts a number of AIM uh, uh, companies in, in, in the portfolio he manages. He, uh, he was one of the, the first 10 constituents of aim he's got he doesn't really mince his words in the in the short interview we did uh, with him about the quality of of what he sees as some of the businesses but to you know to to back up i guess mr stuttard's point about the the differences between the main market and aim he says he doesn't primarily look at which market a company is on when he go he looks at the investment case obviously that will that will factor in at some point but he you know, he will look at a company based on its quality and its its earnings profile first, then look at the the, the regulation that underpins it. So, 
So I mean, it, you know, and he's he's been in the he's been in the market since the the very start. So the fact that he is wary of of many of what he calls some of the spiffy boards uh, that exist, he still sees a lot of value there, as do we. Yeah, uh, and we'll continue to to follow it closely. Absolutely. So we can definitely see AIM being around for another twenty years. Then I'm, I'm sure. I'm Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. No, I, I you know I think his his point is a good one. Um, I mean Simon Thompson, who is our small cap stock picking expert, he. Um, I don't. I mean, he obviously picks a lot of companies from AIM, but but I don't think he uh, that's his primary driver. He looks at the small cap, the fledgling indices, and yeah, it's about looking at the numbers and seeing where the value is. So uh, yeah, I think uh, in that respect, AIM is indeed on a par with uh, with some of its larger brethren. Um, but yeah, for me, the uh, certainly the regulatory thing is 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 odd. I think that needs looking at. But there you go, there you go. Okay, I mean, Robert, you mentioned uh, resource shares. I've obviously, you know, been a, as you say, a big constituent of AIM uh, over over recent years, and and largely responsible for its shoddy performance uh, in the last two or three. You've done a, a big review of uh, BP's statistical yearbook this year, so you know, are things going to things going to be looking up for the uh, the resource constituents of uh, AIM and and uh, the main markets? Well, not really with the the energy stocks, and we shouldn't really be surprised. Uh, the the main takeaway when you look at this statistical review which is the market looks to as something of a, well, I guess a a benchmark for the industry in a way, is that um, primary energy demand isn't keeping up with GDP. So what's the implication there? Well, there's a number of them, as it turns out. The main one that we seem to have locked into is China's transition from a heavily industrialized country to one with a larger service sector. I mean, it is still accounts for a lot of the world's sort of uh, heavy industry still making and whatnot. But it's a central uh, plank of uh, Beijing's policy now, which will see that uh, economy um, turning to a more consumer-based economy over the next uh, couple of decades. And it's already coming through. You look at it now as well, we've seen a, a fall away in, in energy growth over the last years, but what that also means is that the renewable sector uh, is far more prominent. And when you look at it, what, what caught me, well, what was particularly interesting is that uh, about 6% of worldwide power generation is down to re- renewable sources now, and it accounted for a third of the increase in primary em- energy use last year. So, I mean, that, that's fairly significant, I think. There was uh, a few other takeaways as well. The, the, the fact that India might be able to take up some of uh, China's slack because uh, under the Modi government now, they, uh, they, they're they making some um, steady progress in, in, in regulatory issues. So we're talking steelmaking here. Yeah, steelmaking. And uh, that's good for coal. Well, exactly. And they, they wonder, India wants to uh, triple its uh, steel production capacity in fairly short order as well. And, it, and it's... And to do this, the Modi government has uh, changed some of the, the sort of onerous uh, planning uh, uh, obstacles in India, uh, and so we, we're quite um, we're quite confident in, in that regard that it will be able to take up at least some of the slack as uh, China transitions to a different uh, kind of economy. Um, we also point out, or the report points out, that uh, nuclear uh, nuclear fuel was uh, an important. Uh, component last year uh, in in the wake of Fukushima obviously it, 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 I, I point to it as the, the, the fuel source that dare not speak its name mm. uh, but it's uh, going through one of these uh, temporary uh, areas where its reputation in the public public is gradually coming back because there's plenty of environmentalists now who say that we won't be able to sort of meet 
present uh, emission targets by the use of uh, green energies and uh, looking forward, nuclear will, will be part of the, of the, the global energy mix um, to meet these targets if politicians are actually serious about it. And I think there's a lot of evidence to suggest that they uh, they are of the long run. Indeed. And so, so confident are you, you've actually tipped a, a uranium producer this week, haven't you? Don't tell us who it is. Oh, yes, I have. Yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a pure play, if you like, on that, on that market rebounding and prices looking, rebounding. Looking very depressed in terms of valuation against its historic averages. Oh, exactly. And, um, the, well, actually, prices for yellow cake have increased over the last six months, but l- longer term there's every reason to think that, that it's going to move into a fairly large deficit deficit in the next couple of years. Uh, we've mentioned this about copper as well, um, in, a, in a fairly unpromising uh, resource uh, complex as a whole. Those two stand out, I think. Mm, I, I guess the big takeaway for me was uh, was the view of Bob Dudley, who's the boss of BP, uh, and he's basically saying that we can expect price volatility more than anything else in the, in the years ahead. Yeah, and... and uh, and to give him credit as well, he, he was saying much the same thing at, at the beginning of uh, 2014 as well. I mean, he's he's been around long enough to know that uh, it can actually be an extremely volatile part of the market. It's just that we had a period for about 10 years, or 15 years rather, where um, Asia-Pacific demand was growing at such a rate that we took on a general assumption that, you know, this is going to last forever, but of course it, it never does. And uh, his comments are, are backed up uh, by uh, some research from the World Energy Council that we had a look at as well, that it seems to su- suggest that you know volatility will become a permanent feature of the energy markets for the time being. This is great for the traders themselves, but uh, obviously with our readers, they, they'll be looking at this with a, a degree of uh, trepidation, I guess. Um, I would I would say that uh, looking ahead, you, you've got to look at the the stocks that offer... A better growth potential over the long term, and that's why we're, for instance, to give one instance, we're reasonably positive on uh, Shell's approach for BG because it's buying into a, th- a thematic issue, i.e., the, the continued rise of um, LNG and natural gas as a, a fuel generating source. It's also buying at the bottom of the cycle. Which it's is, buying at the bottom of the cycle, and quite unusual with the resource stocks as well. But it, it's it's worth actually getting hold of a, a copy of this uh, if you go into uh, BP's website itself um, and you can look at it in a little bit more detail. This year's this year's uh, probably well last year, two thousand fourteen, going into this year is probably one of the most significant years uh, in energy markets in some time. Hmm. Uh, and naturally, we 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 look at the the growth of unconventional uh, sources in the, the US. Everyone's well, well aware of this now. And again, we point to the fact that a lot of the price levers nowadays aren't actually linked to market fundamentals, but to geopolitical issues as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm still intrigued by this idea that we discussed uh, last week. Uh, in fact, uh, Alex's feature <clears throat> regarding energy efficiency. I well, you can, you can see it certainly in developed uh, economies. Um, but in developing economies like China, I mean, you know, they're not just, you know, shifting to a consumer economy. They're shifting to a consumer economy that actually pays attention to the amount of fuel it uses in its cars and its, you know, its, its electricity supply. I mean, it, we're not just burning energy uh, willy-nilly as no. we did in the past. No, that's it. And with China as well, there, there's a concerted effort from Beijing to improve the air qualities. It became, it's become an economic issue in the country as well. 
So um, they'll, they'll be going to more gas-fired power stations. They've already done this in, in, in a lot of the coastal towns, there, and there's some evidence to suggest that, that, that they're making real progress. Indeed. Um, and I did point out as well that I, th- I think in here somewhere, if you look at Japan and the, and the changes to oil consumption, it's actually it's at lowest level in Japan since 1971, which is extraordinary. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating statistic. But, and, and a lot of this is down to improved, uh, well, improved fuel efficiency for one thing and we see this in European markets and we see it in the US it's only in um, emerging economies where it isn't quite at that level yet so talking of uh, energy efficiency um, might be a good uh, segue into the company news this week because uh, one company we mentioned last week in our energy efficiency feature uh, Flow Group the uh, efficient boiler company has had a bit of a nightmare this week. They've they've had a very bad week. It's gone off the boil. If you uh, <laughs> very good. Um, there was a ruling on the fourth of June. It took until this Tuesday, so it, uh, there was a bit of a lag for for Flow Group to issue their the response to the ruling, which was that uh, a European court found the UK government's decision as part of the Green Deal in the last coalition government to reduce the VAT on energy efficient products. Uh, they uh, the, the the ECJ found that to be uh, in breach of EU VAT rules. Probably plays pretty well into uh, UKIP's hands because it's it's sort of the perfect example of um, Brussels asking for um, asking for energy efficient measures to be taken at the same time, clamping down on governments when they they may introduce a, a measure to to aid that. So it, it's it's certain it's certainly been a, a headache for uh, for Flow Group, which. Um, has had to cut its uh, drastically cut its um, uh, expectations for for boiler installations this year. Uh, the shares were down forty percent, nearly uh, on the wow. news. Yeah, so I, I was a bit sceptical last week when we spoke about this mm. on the radio. Not for that, not for that reason, um, which I must admit I was blissfully unaware of. Uh, but generally, more generally about you know what what kind of boilers customers would buy and i'm going with worcester bosch so sorry, yeah flow group <laughs> <laughs> but it but it, it ties into your uh, your point because the the 15 percent uh, increase in in vot that flow group expects this to to amount to so it was at five a five percent artificial rate that the the green deal had had set now it's expected to expected to jump back up to the, the normal 20 percent vot rate that would add 500 pounds to the price of the boiler so I think you were talking about the the sheer cost as well. Of, pricey. Of, uh, of, of pricey. the spoiler. So um, yeah, the yeah. revolution is has been has been stalled for for at least shame. half a year. No shame. I, I, as I said, I wish it every success. I think you know it'd be good to have uh, uh, a British company competing in this space. You know, every home's got to have a new boiler every every now and then. And uh, yeah, at the moment it's Valent and and Worcester Bosch. Uh, okay, so uh, Ian, results. What we got in the results section uh, that's particularly interesting this week. Um, there's it was good uh, results season for what well, continues to be so for ho- house builders. We have Barclay Group and Crest Nicholson um, both reporting this week, um, and what we're seeing really is that average selling prices uh, for houses have um, risen quite considerably, and that's driving the profits. It's reasonably simple, really. I mean, Barclay Group actually um, sold fewer homes uh, in 2015. Than it did in 2014 financial year, um, and yet its um, operating profit grew by 40% to just uh, over half a billion pounds. And we're still positive on those, I take it. Yeah, we both have them both on a buy. They've both done well. Um, they're both on full buy uh, tips, and they've done well. Yeah, we've uh, we've we've stuck with that house builder trade, perhaps uh, longer than some people thought we should have, and it's been it's it's been vindicated that stance. 
Yeah, I just think the secular arguments for it quite strong, aren't they? Absolutely, I think there's there's more to come. Surely, more to come. House building here is just not. Uh, we don't build too many houses, and the ones that we do are quite expensive. Indeed. Um, I mean, in terms of valuation, how are they looking? Yeah, they're not looking too expensive. And we can see the PE ratio for Barclays 11, uh, 12 for Chris Nicholson. Um, so, yeah, we, we see further upside. And crucially, they've done well um, compared to our tips. So it, we're happy. Interestingly, though, we, uh, the cover feature this week is about companies that perhaps you know, don't exhibit those, uh, yeah, on the face of it, very cheap valuations. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. But uh, one, of, one of the companies that, that pops up in that cover feature, reassuringly expensive, was uh, Halma. And they had some results this week that, that, that looked pretty nice. Yeah, adjusted operating profit was up by a tenth, £159 million. Uh, it was 12th consecutive year of record revenue and profit, which is pretty good, isn't it? And uh, yeah, I mean, everything seems to be moving in the right direction there on, a, on an almost permanent basis. I mean, it's an extraordinary company. Yeah, and, and a very diverse one as well. And I think that's probably helping its share price, which, as you can see from the graph and the story, has had a pretty good run. Yeah, I mean, this is, this, this is an example. I mean, reading Harriet's piece, Harriet Russell, who wrote the, the feature, you know, one of the characteristics of that company, which I really like, and I think, you know, we should always be on the lookout for this, is, you know, it, it constantly um, is on the lookout for new businesses to bolt on through acquisition and, you know, to, to move into new areas where it thinks there's value to be had, very specialist areas. And I, and I love that in, in, in companies, you know. Big bet the farm acquisitions, which we occasionally see, I'm, I'm always wary of. But, you know, these, these businesses that can, can, can buy and build like this, I think they're fantastic. And Helm uh, is a great example of that. Another example of a company which, which hasn't necessarily gone down the buy and build strategy, which, which is reassuringly expensive, which uh, we feature on the broker page this week, is Ted Baker, which had uh, an amazing week. Um, expensive shares, but, you know, they just keep on going. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary company in the retail fashion business. We've um, uh, we've kept them on a buy, even though I think their forward PE ratio is something like twenty eight times this year. But the rate of growth over the last four years has been uh, has been pretty astounding. I think they're forecast by one of the brokers to to grow at a compound annual growth rate of eighteen uh, percent over the next three years. So they are unafraid of of taking on the world. It seems they're o- they're opening up outlets all over uh, North America, the Middle East. They're now eight. They're going into Asia. Their wholesale business doing really well. I think their e- e-commerce business was up by nearly a half. Yeah, it's all going it's all going great guns for uh, for Ted Baker. You know, and you said earlier, Alex, that you know you don't see on the main market companies travelling in value in you know uh, two or three years. I remember the share price of Ted Baker is now 2,850p, 28 and a half quid. I tipped this as a tip of the year, probably about five years ago, and it was four, £4.50 at the time. I yeah, eat I mean, my words. I mean, Ten minutes it, later, it I eat happen. my words. It yeah. does happen. You know, but I, I, even then, I remember looking at the shares thinking, they're not cheap. Mm. <laughs> Here we are. Here we are, five or six years later. And you know, the shares have, uh, have risen five-fold in value, five or six-fold in value, you know, um, quali- seven-fold in value. Well, to qualify my, my my earlier point, it was it was FTSE 100 companies, but I mean Ted Baker at this at this rate, you know, will will soon be entering that bracket because I think it's it's slightly below the FTSE 100. Indeed, um, I mean, you know, the, yeah. again, this business I like. You know, you talked about internationalisation, not afraid to take on the world, but it has approached that in in a in a very sensible fashion. So. You know, when we looked at this five or six years ago, yeah, it was dabbling internationally, but it wasn't going, going uh, all guns blazing into international markets. And I think it's, you know, it's taken its time, consolidated its position and then realised when it had the strength to, to move overseas. And, I, you know, I, again, for me, this is a management thing. It's, I mean, it's so hard to do as well, isn't it? It's not an M&A story. It's, it's a lifestyle brand that, 
they've managed very very well and uh, and have sold it to the to the world as a quintessentially British brand. So, mm. um, which is uh, like know, Burberry, indeed. Yeah. Not Burberry, not Mulberry though. Not Mulberry. Yeah, Mulberry. Did they have results this week? Or, uh, yes, they, yeah, they did. They, they were pretty shocking, weren't they? Well, it's a year of two halves, wasn't it? They had um, uh, that decision to hike prices. Um, which hit retail sales in the first half, so they didn't really work. And so they weren't they... quite as uh, as luxury as uh, as they thought they were then. They changed tack. Correct me if I'm wrong, but they changed tack w- within a few months once it uh, came to light that this decision had been as like a st- strategic disaster. Yeah, you know, they they pulled back, and but now it's obviously it's going to take them a couple of years till they uh, restore yeah. their fortunes. Again, again, I mean, Bolt Mulberry has been around for a long time, but again, it's been on it's been on the A market for many many years. But you know, it was it was kind of small. UK-centric business, you know, the business of luxury hadn't gone global in the way it has in the last couple of years. And, you know, it, I think I think it sort of tried to run before it could walk in mm. respect of actually internationalising uh, at the ultra-premium end of the market. And, you know, it did exactly the opposite of what I've, I've just said Ted Baker did. It, it said, well, there... we, you know, we're going to go to China, we're going to charge as much as we possibly can, and, you know, we're going to make a huge amount of money. I think they misjudged it. Isn't there always a danger, though, with, with that um, high end of the market as well? If you, if you do try and expand internationally, the brand itself tends to lose a bit of cachet. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I'm 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 not enough of a, a connoisseur of luxury brands to understand that. What we do know is that China had a crackdown on luxury gift giving, which coincided with this disastrous decision mm. to raise yeah. prices. So, I mean, you know, that chief exec is no longer at the company, and uh, you know, not surprised really. Yeah, didn't read the market especially well. One, one could argue, but there you go. There you go. Um, okay, so um, some interesting. Uh, reassuringly expensive companies this uh, in, in the results section this week. A um, couple of AIM Classics, actually Majestic's there. They've had a bit of a rough time too. Um, but again, another business which I think you know we ought to give uh, the benefit of the doubt. Um, what do you think of uh, Majestic, Alex? Uh, so I think Harriet put them on a on a sell. Uh, they've cut their dividend, which was a which was a very strong selling point. But they're changing. Uh, they are business, changing. They, so yeah. they they bought Naked Wines, which was um, which gives them. I think their their management said potentially eightfold uh, greater exposure in in the US. So this could be a, a kind of an inflection point. But I think the, the shares fell a little bit on the um, on the news. Uh, though we've yeah you know, we've we've banked profits here. I think this is why Harriet's um, majestic on a sell. So um, so uh, more to come from them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know a very good example of the the quality that AIM has to offer. And you know for everything I've just said about Mulberry, you know it is a a classic British manufacturer, you know, and it is a success story. And I think you mentioned Alex that the shares have risen uh, quite substantially since it came to market. What's the figure? Mulberry, yeah. Um, so they, I think they floated in 1996, and uh, it's a it's a fivefold gain off the top of my head since then. Domino's yeah. done slightly better. So it's a uh, less premium product, but uh, they're up a thousand percent since they floated in, in 1999. So, well, I know which I prefer, and it's <laughs> not handbags. <laughs> okay, um, so thank you, everyone. Um, yeah, lots in the magazine this week. We've only discussed uh, uh, really the tip of the iceberg in terms of the content we've got this week. Um, Simon Thompson has, uh, has has published a great piece, really trying to understand. Um, the, the implications of what's going on in Greece and on the bond markets. You know, we've discussed them very briefly, but it's an incredibly complex issue. I, th- I think Simon is, is less ruffled by what's going on there. thinks that the equity markets still have a, a bit of life left in them. Um, in the fund section, we're, we're actually uh, continuing the AIM theme. We're having a look at some of the funds that you can uh, use to access that market. Um, 
let the experts do the stock picking for you, given it's a stock pickers market. And some of those funds have done done exceptionally well. Uh, and you know, as we've said, there's rich pickings for them them to choose from. I'm sure you'll hear more about that on the, their podcast uh, later this week. Um, stock screen is momentum this week. Uh, momentum has been a, a great strategy and uh, sector focus. Uh, Jonas Crossland is looking uh, for uh, uh, GPs. Um, uh, and actually, the property companies that underpin the UK's massive, massive GP market. Great businesses to be in. Uh, okay, so uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, Alex, um, for your, uh, your contributions this week. Uh, as I said, lots in the magazine, so uh, make sure you go and pick that up this week. Worth Every Penny is the cover story, and Worth Every Penny, the Investors Chronicle is £4.50. All good news agents. Uh, see you next week. Thank you very much. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.